You're listening to episode three, If the Bedroom Walls Had Ears with Anne-Marie Kelly. It's a six-part series focusing on the young. Can we find the answers to the big questions of the universe from our youth? It's always been my focus to, um, if I get into academia, to quote research that's actually relevant to people. I hope that the research I'm doing leads to actual positive change. It's, it would be great as well that it came from a from research which is based on actually talking to carers themselves. If the Bedroom Walls Had Ears would like to acknowledge the funding it has received from the Keep Well campaign, which is brought to you with thanks to Healthy Ireland, an institute of the Government of Ireland, with funding from the Healthy Ireland Fund and the Slauncher Care Fund, delivered by Pubble, administered by Leash County Council and Healthy Ireland Leash. Nicholas O'Neill is 25 years of age. He's from Abbey Leaks and he's the first in his family to go to college. And he has just received a scholarship worth a hundred grand to undertake a PhD uncovering how our home care system here in Ireland works. No one has actually documented what's going on in home care. It was essentially a piece of investigative journalism, really. Nick found that Ireland uses a model which cuts costs as much as possible. So that's that's the big trend in, in recent decades in home care in Ireland and across Europe has been cost containment and it's the same across all of healthcare. And guess who suffers the most? The problem with cost containment in healthcare is that usually it comes at the expense of the workers because wages and and benefits and all that stuff make up such a high proportion of the costs of home care that in order to keep costs down basically it comes at the expense of workers' wages. Nick and his supervisor, Julian Marcel from UCD, have just published a paper called The Growth of Private Home Care Providers in Ireland. And their big finding is that there's a big difference between working for the HSE and working for a private home care provider. They're worse paid than the HSE. There's actually, there's a big disparity between employment and working conditions in the HSE versus the private sector, which is another downside, basically, of privatisation, because... There's no government regulation in the private sector. They outsource the care to the private sector and wages are typically around minimum wage or something like that, whereas in the HSE there can be something around €14. Euro or, you know, it's, it's over the living wage. It's good for the private care sector, but not for the private care worker. And the HSE carers have better benefits. They also have way better entitlements. Like, they're entitled to sick pay. Um, they're entitled to pensions, stuff like that. There's much less long-term responsibilities by outsourcing care to the private sector, which is just another channel through which they they contain costs. Take us through, when you began this paper, did you choose this uh, on purpose or did your your associate, did he choose it? Because it's uh, it's really interesting what you've discovered in relation to, I suppose, the promotion of corporate power, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So... It kind of came from conversations with my supervisor. He's established in the field as someone who researches on healthcare. And he had already researched about privatisation in the Irish hospital sector and the Irish nursing home care sector. And he had always noticed there is a massive gap in the research in relation to the home care sector. Supervisor Julian Marcel on the HSE. They're quite secretive as an organization, so Ireland doesn't have very good data on healthcare. 
From UCD, Julian is Nick's supervisor on this paper and he has been researching health and social care systems here in Ireland for a number of years. That's the first thing that struck me with him when he was doing his master's. You know, we get a lot of master's students and he proposed a few tasks or whatever. And I didn't know him at all. He just came to my office and he said, oh, I'd like to work on privatization healthcare with you. And I said, okay, that's great. Um, so why don't you ask the HSC about this data set that I've been looking for? And usually when you say that, students might not come back with it because of whatever reason, but he came back with, with it all and within two or three weeks, which is the time I was expecting, you know, I wasn't expecting two or three days because it never... So I thought, oh, okay, this one is, uh, <laughs> is, is, pretty, uh, is pretty good. You could see right away that there was something, uh, I would say, solid about, about him um, for that, which you absolutely need to do that work, otherwise you're just not going to get anything. And then uh, we were able to publish that, which is very exceptional. So just through conversations with him, we realized like no one has actually documented what's going on in home care. And as such a kind of important aspect of the healthcare system, it was, it was a perfect opportunity to kind of investigate it more and really get to the bottom of what's happening in the home care sector. Uh, is it the same as the hospital care sector? Um, is it the same as the nursing homes? Um, so yeah, it was basically, it was essentially a piece of investigative journalism, really. The thing I tried to keep with him and every other student is that you have to find something you really like into whatever you're doing. His, his heart is at the right place, let's say, for, for what we're doing, which is very important because a lot of people, it's the same in any domain in life, I think. You, if you're successful, you keep going because it's rewarding in a way, but then you wake up at 35 years old or 40 and you're like, okay, well, I did all that, but I don't really care, you know? And then you're like, what am I doing in this place? I've seen a lot of cases like that. And so I try to keep him... <laughs> Keep him not having a, a crisis at 35 years old, you know? <laughs> it was 14 years of, of financial records that you got your hands on, 14 years. Mm. And you had access to, as you said, former HSE employees. You found that, and this is amazing, funds allocated to private providers increased from 3 million in 2006 to 176 million in 2019. That's just, that's just unbelievable, isn't it? Oh yeah, it's absolutely crazy. Yeah, it's one of the most dramatic increases across all of Europe. I mean, to go from less than less than five percent of government spending was on private healthcare around the time of the HSE's establishment in two thousand six, and then only fifteen years later, it's almost half of government spending. This particular figure, right? So you're saying that this one particular finding that you you have here. So you're saying that massive amount of money. Uh, went from being 3 million to 176 million in the space of like 13 years. How did that happen? Yeah, it largely happened through um, basically policies surrounding outsourcing care. A big kind of milestone in that period was around 2012. They introduced what's known as competitive tendering to home care, which is basically to increase competition among providers. So they, they tender for care and it goes to either the carer who can offer the lowest cost or who's able to actually take on the care or just who has the most resources to kind of reply to the paperwork quickly. What happened then was they tendered the care out to the private sector and it's for-profit companies in competition with not-for-profit companies 
And because, number one, there are way more for-profit companies around this period and just they're way more well-organised and they're able to kind of market their care through way more channels, um, they kind of got a strong foothold in the industry around 2012. And that's when they really took off. They would have big money and successful models and they'd know how to advertise. So, in other words, they almost displaced or, or disabled the non-profit or family-run cares. Like, not all private providers are bad. Um, it, it, the problem is that some of these big ones are operated, you know, they're, they're in some cases, international corporations, and they're, they're run as businesses with a for-profit ethos. And the problem for that, number one, for cares, and number two, for the people who are receiving the care is that home care begins to be run like a business where it's all about efficiency and getting things done as quickly as possible and keeping profit margins high and then we end up at the moment where it's an under-resourced sector, an understaffed sector and a sector in which the people receiving the care have very low care needs but a big part of what they kind of look forward to in seeing their carers every day is actually the kind of someone to keep them company and have a chat and help with the kind of loneliness and mental health aspect. It's not always so much that they need a lot of care from their carer. It's just the fact that this is the only person many of them see throughout the whole day. So when someone comes in and they have to stick to a strict and kind of rigid schedule of tasks they have to do to fill out the paperwork or whatever, and they're in and out in half an hour. I think that's the biggest problem and the sad thing for the people receiving the care. So now focusing on the home care worker, Paul Bell from SIPTU is looking for equality for workers' rights and rates of pay. Every single carer has to be treated as a worker. And in that, that means basically workers' rights, the rights to contract, the rights to early rates of pay, the rights to rest time, the rights to a job description, so it's very clear what those roles are meant to be, and also to make sure that as this particular sector expands, and it will expand, that those who are funding the services, be they the taxpayer, understand that those providing care in the community and in the home are treated equally to those who provide care in the institutions of the state. So now with my PhD, I'm kind of digging deeper into okay, how does this affect care workers and how does it affect people receiving the care? If you were to recommend these, some of the stuff you've found, well, how would you move forward if you're going to lobby the government? In terms of practical things that, could, that I'd recommend that could literally change overnight, um, introducing a, a mandatory living wage for private home carers would be a massive thing, just because there's such a big gap between HSE pay and private sector pay. This would bring them working conditions straight up. Another massive problem is zero-hour contracts and if and when contracts. Again, kind of offering more guaranteed hours to, to all carers would be another thing I would recommend that could change. Another practical thing would be, and this isn't so much a problem in Dublin and urban areas, but especially in rural Ireland, there's a big gap between, say you, you go and you visit 10 people a day. There's sometimes a big gap between the distances you have to travel and often if you work for a private company 
you're not reimbursed petrol money for this time. So you're actually spending a big chunk of your already low wages on petrol money driving between 10 houses each day. And it's a bit different in Dublin, obviously, because you might get 10 people on the same street, for example. Another thing that's practical, again, would be, particularly in the context of COVID, they haven't been getting sick pay, a lot of carers. Like, even if they've been forced to self-isolate. So it's for no fault of their own, they're having to miss work. And for many people, that just incentivizes them to go to work, even if they have symptoms, because it's the difference between paying a bill or not. So that's another massive problem. Um, more broadly speaking, I would just recommend, instead of constantly continuing down this trend of outsourcing care to meet the growing demand for home care, um, invest more in the public sector so that we can address the capacity issue in the, in the public sector. I mean. I'm not sure on the latest figures, but last January there was over 8,000 people on the on the home care waiting list. So if you're looking to address that demand in the next few months or whatever, then invest in making care work more attractive, basically, because there's a, there's a massive problem with retention of carers and recruitment of, te- of carers, because the conditions are so unattractive. So getting to the root of that would be probably the, the biggest thing they could do in terms of a practical overnight measure. Paddy Connolly talks about those figures. Paddy is from Age Action Ireland. He spoke to Sean O'Rourke on RTE last year. Well, I think the home care system, as we know, is already under huge pressure. It's dependent on 195,000 family carers, 1,800 of whom are are over 70. And there are about 7,000 people uh, on waiting lists who have been assessed for home care. We know the home care system was already undervalued and under pressure before COVID-19 arose. When COVID-19 broke then, about 25 to 30 percent of people cancelled their home care for fear of the COVID-19 infection coming into their home. So it was a system that that was beginning to creak anyway pre-COVID-19. It's interesting for a young man like yourself, the idea that you are investigating. You're like, a, you're like a private investigator because, as you said, the research in this area is tiny. You know, it's a tiny area of research. So yourself and your supervisor uh, finding this gap and finding these figures, these uneven figures across the board. Are the government aware of this paper? The most response I've had to it are from opposition parties. But in terms of those parties that are actually in government, they haven't actually kind of directly come out and said anything for or against what's been said, you know. From talking to the, you know, the HSE, the Department of Health, these are all government officials and every single one of them I've talked to completely agrees with the kind of stuff I'm saying. Back to Julian, Nick's supervisor, on the paper they produced together and whether it could make a change. Yeah, it could, yeah, absolutely, because, um, well, first, it's a good paper, we have good data, um, and in Ireland, um, because it's a small country where a lot of research hasn't been done for the healthcare side of things, and the home care, I mean, who would have thought that home care would become a trendy topic, you know, seriously, like, you know, <laughs> and now it's very trendy because population is aging because of COVID. Everybody is talking about home care. I mean, I thought I would have yes. ranked that number 6,000 on the list of media topics two years ago. Yeah, I mean, the government is talking now somewhat seriously to bring a statutory scheme for home care, so it would give people the right to home care services. Right now, Ireland is one of the few countries in Europe that doesn't have that. So it's based on 
whatever is available. But with a scheme like that, you'd have the government would have more of an obligation to provide you with with home care. Socialist British film director Ken Loach has recently released a film focusing on the struggles of a home care worker, Abby. She struggles to get to all her jobs and what she calls clients. And here she is having to leave a client to go to her next job and she rings her boss to tell her. I've been there over an hour and a half cleaning her up because she had shit all over her hair, under her nails, it was on the walls, all over me. I'm covered in scratches off her. So what do you think, what am I supposed to do? Just leave her. She's not a difficult uh, client. She's, she's very vulnerable and she needs more than what she's getting, actually. And I've told you this three times already. Nobody listens to us. So I'm just going to give them, make the call myself. Don't tell us to calm down. Are you going to pay us? Are you going to pay us me extra hour? Yeah, but you still expect us to clean up all the mess in, in the short space of time that we get. There's no point in ringing her daughter. She couldn't give a shit about her. Yes, I know. But tonight's my night with my family and I've done extra today. No, I'm doing my bloody best. I don't have enough time. I've got one rule. Treat them like your mum, like look after them. You wouldn't leave your mum and stay like that. Nobody would. Ken Loach's film is called Sorry I Missed You. And on a Saturday night, Abby's night off, she gets a phone call from a client. No doubt a common practice. Molly, what's going on? It's so humiliating. I feel so stupid. I can't even get the toilets on my own. Right, come on. Look at me, and I want you to listen. And don't ever forget this. You do more for me than you'll ever know. All right? Well, I'm pleased I can do something for somebody. You really do. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny you should mention Ken Loach, actually. He has a... There's a book on the this very problem in England called NHS SOS, and he actually has a, an introductory um, chapter talking about it, which is it's really good. I suppose now as well, in the middle of a pandemic... You know, you see the gap between those who are taken care of and can take the two weeks sick pay and those who are working in the same environment with worse conditions and they perhaps are a close contact or have COVID and they have to take two weeks with no pay. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, the, the pandemic has just completely highlighted the, the flaws in the, in the system and in every kind of kind of aspect. I mean, even just the kind of guidance home care workers have received has been incredibly unclear um, from the start. And that's kind of, that's fueled their fear and anxiety in going to work because they're scared they're going to get it themselves. Maybe they're anxious they're going to actually pass it on to a, a vulnerable, older or disabled person who, who might not be in the position to kind of fight it off. And then they're also anxious that they might bring it home to their own families. And then on top of all of that, if they feel the need to self-isolate because they might have symptoms, they're not actually receiving sick pay. So they might actually not be able to make ends meet, basically. So it's, it's kind of like a, a vicious cycle. The pandemic has just really exposed the extremities of it. This is a thing that goes, that predates the pandemic by 10 years. Uh, the carer that is struggling, the person in that environment, you know, is more than likely to work in a, a more working class background, um, but they're being treated very differently. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a, a lot of um, kind of people use the kind of unskilled um, kind of label or whatever, just in terms of essentially private care com- or any care companies will, will, will take on people with very few like qualifications in actual care work just because it's such an unattractive um, 
career trajectory at the moment. Um, so yeah, they get a lot of um, migrant women um, who, are, who are just desperate for work. Um, they get a lot of people from working class backgrounds who, for the same reason, need to work or whatever. All of these issues are kind of interconnected and they kind of mutually reinforce each other. As you mentioned, the migrant workers, if they had to isolate, for instance, they won't have two bathrooms. They may not. They'd be less likely to have two bathrooms or separate sitting rooms, say, to isolate. So they will bring it home to their family. They're more likely to bring it home to their family and not be able to isolate properly. Yeah, exactly. There's a brilliant um, quote at the the start of the pandemic saying, we're all going through the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. It's really a, a good thing for carers because... We're not all in the same boat, you know. Like, if you live in a really tight apartment in Dublin with three other people, as you say, you're not going to be able to isolate properly and you might bring it back to them. It's a lot different from someone living in a a massive house in South Dublin and has, you know, 12 bathrooms. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's, no, it's it's, it's completely different. Yeah, but even if somebody works in the public system, they they, are, they will get paid. You know, they'll, they'll be allowed that, that couple of weeks to recover um, and they won't feel the stress of going, oh, I can't go to work. And then obviously, I'm not saying, you know, all of them, but they're more likely to go to work uh, if you don't get paid because, well, what are you going to do? Do you isolate for two weeks with no money or just go to work anyway? If you're right, if you have a, a slight symptoms, you might just say, yeah, I'll go to work. If I don't, I'm not going to be able to pay a bill this week. Versus someone in the in the HSE who, even if they have a slight symptom, they're saying, OK, I can afford to stay home. I'm going to be receiving um, the adequate sick pay. All it takes is one person to go in and it, it tends to spread like wildfire. So, Nick, uh, you're, you're busy. You're, you're keeping your head down. The, the, the grant that you got, uh, when does that run out? <laughs> <laughs> it says four years, actually. I'm, a, I'm able to keep drawing from it <laughs> but I hope um, hope to be done definitely around three year mark I should be coming to a, a finish In Ireland you can actually be the first one to do some small piece of research that's done for the first time in, in a few years let's say everything is quite important uh, about what he's doing uh, so there's definitely work to be done and it's kind of weird for me because before like i said you're never the first one to do anything really the first one to you know trace the evolution of home care in the last five ten years that's possible here and that's what he's doing so could have an impact the, the hope then would be, would it be the hope for you and your supervisor to sit down with uh, Stephen Donnelly <laughs> and say, hey, Stephen, uh, this is what we found. These are the imbalances and these are the unjust rules of certain care workers in certain environments. Um, is there any way you could uh, go over to Scandinavia for a year and uh, <laughs> have, have a look at their model and come back and change the Irish model? Would that be your dream, would it? Yeah, he probably just gave us a thumbs up, so... yes exactly Uh, honestly though would that be I mean you know let's 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 dream a little bit uh, because otherwise uh, we have to stay positive Um, would that be something that you'd you'd imagine a paper like this because of your facts because of all your, your thorough interviews that you would be able to at some stage meet with somebody to say look we found this um this research over the last four years you know, let's try and lobby. Is that what you're trying to do then? 
Yeah, definitely. Like as I said earlier, I was working. I used to work for the the think tank called Task in Dublin, and their big thing was turning analysis into action. And I saw when I worked there, the impact good research and good evidence can have if you lobby for it properly and if it's brought into the doll chambers. And eventually, the momentum of enough evidence and enough hard facts, it makes them sit up and take notice. Yeah, and he also has a, I would say, a side of.、Um... We talked about activism. I don't know how much activism he does, but certainly, you know, I could see him working in academia later, but also in a think tank or something, or for an NGO on the side or, or formally. I think it, that's the, the passion side, let's say the, the value side that you could、uh, identify, and so it's worked、uh, pretty well. Absolutely, my, my my end goal would be to to keep digging deeper with this research. And keep putting stuff out there, and eventually build an evidence base that they just, you know, they can't ignore. It starts to be、um, debated more in the public domain, and eventually leads to progressive change in all the areas I've talked about. And giving voice to the the, the worker. Yeah, exactly. I mean, academia gets, and myself, I did the same. It gets a lot of criticism for the kind of ivory tower、um, talking about from a privileged position thing, but it's always been my. My focus to,、um, if I get into academia, to pull research that's actually relevant to people, that actually is relevant to policy, and isn't some kind of far-fetched, like theoretical thing that has no grounding in everyday lives. Yeah, absolutely. I, I hope that、um, the research I'm doing leads to actual positive change, and it would be great as well that it came from a. From research, which is based on actually talking to carers themselves, rather than just kind of speaking from a, a disconnected position. And so, who would you admire? I mean, is there anybody in the world that you, I could say to you, if you'd like to be be like that person, or you look up to that person, who would it be? <laughs> yeah, I like Noam. Noam. I like Noam Chomsky. There's a few politicians and stuff like I like Bernie Sanders, and I, do, I like people who are just kind of. Genuine and passionate about what they do,、um, and doing it for the right reasons. So, will you be wearing a Bernie Sanders coat? <laughs> <laughs> the mitts.、Uh... <laughs> okay. Well, listen. It's been really wonderful speaking to you. I love the idea of someone so young and so driven by your findings that you'll continue forward, and you've been paid for it as well. Which makes you, you know, able to be the only person in your family to go to college and continue to go to college. And the very best of luck in your findings, and stay strong in your environment. Thanks very much, Emery, and thanks for having me on. On the next episode, twenty-year-old Eva Byrne, who has Down syndrome, on her hopes and dreams, and getting through lockdown. That's if we can stop laughing. Running, kicking, I, I love it to pieces. Yes. Have you ever dropped a dumbbell and Mammy goes, "What the heck is that?" <laughs> If the bedroom walls had ears, would like to acknowledge the funding it has received from the Keep Well campaign, which is brought to you with thanks to Healthy Ireland, an institute of the Government of Ireland, with funding from the Healthy Ireland Fund and the Slauncher Care Fund, delivered by Pubble. Administered by Leash County Council and Healthy Ireland Leash.